Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand worn by John McEnroe, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. The new Young Line sneaker they rolled out is tremendous. It is my favorite walk-around shoe. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. When he was 20 years old, he blasted onto the tennis scene at his home major, the 1996 Australian Open. When he destroyed Pete Sampras in the third round, he got to eight in the world, reached two major finals, and helped lead Australia to two Davis Cup wins. The scud, Mark Philippoussis, is today's guest. My man, my man, are you hearing you hear me good now? Perfect. Super. Where are you? Melbourne, Australia, man. We moved back to Melbourne March last year. Yeah, you're in your house right now? Yep, in the house. So it's just mid-morning. So it's, it was, it was about uh, mid-morning? In, 11, in, yeah, uh, yeah 10, 10 to 12. 10 to 12. 10 to 12. Gentlemen, you hear, it's former world number eight, two-time major finalist. He beat everybody from, you know, Sampras to Agassi and was a stalwart of the Australian Davis Cup team and an old friend of mine. Mark Philippoussis, the Scud. Uh, how are you doing, man? It's been a while. Yeah, man. Great. Good to see you, man. It's been a long time. You're looking good, by the way. I like the, uh, I like the, the beard. I think I you like look the it. same. I look very different. I look very different. I look like I ate myself, but you, you look good, man. <laughs> I've got a filter on. I've got this new filter on. I'm trying, man. <laughs> um, yeah, really nice to see you. Um, listen, we do, as you know, we do a five set format. Let's just, I'm going to slam right into it. The first All set right, is the Let's off the it. court report. What has this really this year been like for you and your family? What a, what a screwed up, what a screwy year, man. Crazy. Um, look, first of all, we're blessed. Um, we've got each other and, and, you know, we're healthy. We're in our home, but let me tell you, man, we're in Melbourne, Australia. And I'm sure a lot of people know that's lockdown capital of the world. We've been in lockdown for over six months now. I mean, it's, it's crazy where, I mean, there's a new, um, you know, hopefully this Sunday we might have some restrictions ease, but at the moment, you know, we can't leave out of our five kilometer zone of our, of our home. We know within five kilometers, we've got to stay. Um, you can't even see loved ones. You can't even see family members if they're not in the five kilometer zone. Um, you know, small businesses, people, are, you know, I think almost half of the small businesses will be gone. Um, even after lockdown, they're, 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 a third's gone already. Um, you know, people are losing their businesses. They're losing their homes, unable to pay their homes. I mean, you know, the, the mental health no one's talking about that but but is it's just it's very sad what's going on you know it's it's very sad right now and and um hopefully do you think that sorry do you think they need to loosen the response or adjust the response or do you think that you're taking it the most serious and the, the key is is to be safe look man number one you know me great i am not a political person at all <laughs> never have been but when politics starts playing a role and starts telling you how you can live your life and how you can raise your kids, then, then I'm, I've got an issue. Um, and first of all, you know, when these politicians are trying to say 
we've been given health by a health uh, thing, authorities, what to do. It's like, who are these guys? I guarantee you last year, they were in some office doing something else. Now all of a sudden they're health experts because they have to be, you know what I mean? Whereas World Health Organization, the WHO, are telling everyone right now that the worst thing you can do is lockdown. You do not do any lockdowns. Lockdowns are dangerous. It's dangerous for the mental mind. It's dangerous for the economy. It's dangerous for a lot of reasons. And these are the guys that, that that's, are literally have always been there for health in the past, for, for certain things that have happened. This is a tough time. I mean, we're dealing with, it is a global pandemic, call it what you will, but there is something on going on globally. Who knows exactly what's going on, but there's something going on. And, and we've got to try and find a, a normal, because this isn't going away. It's not like, you know, these politicians think they're going to get it to zero. And it's, man, things are going to, borders going to open up, people are going to fly in, all of a sudden 10 people are going to be sick again, then it's going to be a few hundred people, might be a thousand. We've got to learn to live with it. And I think what people said at the start is, you know, focus on the elderly, focus on the sick, focus on the aged care. Let's protect them and put all our focus on protecting them, number one. And second of all, let's just be smart. You know, wash your hands, do what you got to do. Let's, you know, be smart. But we've got to continue on with our lives because you can't just stop living, man. Uh, this is this is not going anywhere for a while you know i think uh i think everybody's feeling a lot of pandemic fatigue and it sounds to me like the very strident regulations in melbourne are wearing thin on on the on the city oh dude it is what it is hopefully things change this sunday he's making an announcement and i hope restrictions are eased but um people have had enough that's for sure let's move into the second set this is the on the court report have you kept your eye on pro tennis this year? Yeah, man, I absolutely. You know, when things are interesting, when there's an interesting match on or a big event, you know, I'll check it out and I'll I'll tune in um, and see what's going on. Listen, man, part of me feels like you, in a way, were like the first Greek freak, right? Like, in a sense, <laughs> I don't know how significantly people realize how, like, how Greek you really are, but you've got very significant Greek roots, do you, I yeah, believe you speak, you speak Greek. I speak Greek. It's my first language. Um, well, you know, pretty much with that with English growing up. So we speak Greek at home, grew up speaking Greek. Do you know Sitsipas? Do you keep your eye on him? Do you know him? I do know I do know him. And he's a good kid, man. I've actually spoken to him for quite a few years that I would bump into the dad and the dad would stop me. We would speak. I actually got on the court, hit with him um, last year at Wimbledon before Wimbledon started. Really? Um, yeah, man, he's a, just a great family. He is a good kid. I love, huge fan, by the way, of, of, of his game and as a person too. He, you know, incredibly passionate. His tennis is awesome, man. Oh, beautiful all-around game. You know, not scared to come to the net. He's, he, let me tell you, he's going to get so much better. And people have no idea because he's going to fill out physically. He's going to be hitting the ball even harder. He's going to be moving even stronger. Um, he's going to figure out his game i feel i feel the weakest um surface for him right now is grass without a doubt grass for sure hard court obviously uh, i think hard court um you know is number one even though clay we can see what he can do on clay i mean he can do it on everything but but he's just taking he's going to take a couple of extra years a little longer on the grass just because still i know it's not the grass that that we both remember but it's still grass. You know what I mean? So you still have to adjust a little for certain things, 
But man, that kid with 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 his go around game, with the with the focus he has, with the intensity and passion. Love the passion he has out there. You know, he's a he, cool kid. It seems now. Yeah. Um, what does his ball feel like when you when you practice with him? Heavy, 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 man, heavy, heavy, heavy deep, heavy, just beautiful all around game. Can volley, good technique. I mean, watching um, him play on the red clay was like was a pleasure. Absolutely, he's got a bit of a swing on his on his ground strokes, so it just allows him a little more time to work the ball. And he's, you know, he gets there. It's, it's similar to Roger, right? He's one of the guys where he gets there. It's not like he's got one or two options. He's kind of got like three, two to three, four options. You know what I mean? Um, whereas other guys, it's kind of like most of the time it's cross scored, maybe down the line. He's got, you know, a few options. In a way, he reminds me of you when you first came on the scene. You know, the way you just kind of had this like big ornery, presence on the court like the court coverage of his body is like he looks like a superman on the court yeah great athlete man great athlete i mean his family's obviously uh, they're good athletes you can see the dad and the mom the mom used to apparently she she could play the mom and the dad hits a beautiful tennis ball you yeah. know i saw him on the court the and i was surprised I'm like, yeah man you can hit. i'm like i didn't know you could play I was like, I mean, the dad's not, got clean strokes. You know, he can, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's it's an athletic family, um, and he's look, he's doing all the right things too on and off the court. Man, he trains hard, trains hard on the court, trains hard physically, and, and he's he's wanted to to, uh, to definitely take tennis uh, in the future. Do you know Nick Kyrgios? I don't know him very. I mean, I know him, but not incredibly close. And I can't really say I've had a conversation no. with meaningful conversation a little bit he's a he's a totally different cat i mean i don't have to tell you that you know what i mean but, so uh, a totally different cat so so do you have any feel at all for why he just laid laid out on the whole year and chose not to play um i don't know i, I can't speak for him man. i can't speak for him but but definitely his mentality and the way he you know chooses to to um approach things way different you know as far as his priority obviously i mean he said i don't think his priority would is the same as Titipas's priorities you know Titipas, man he knows what he wants he knows his target he knows you know w w what he needs to do and he's boom you know i think definitely i think he's using this time you know i i think nick is using his time to chill at home man to be honest with you you know he just doesn't using even want this to play just to chill i just can't get over that yeah yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he's doing what makes him happy. Now, that's the most important thing. Yeah. You can't fault anybody for that. You know, you've, you've, if that's what makes him happy, man, staying home. And it's tough because you've got to understand, unless he's never the type of guy that's going to go over to the States or Europe and stay there for a few months. I mean, I know that, I know that inside of him for a fact that he needs to be surrounded by his close friends or to get back to his family, to get back home. He's that type of guy. So... And the issue also is, as an Aussie, is you come back into the country, you've got to quarantine for 14 days automatically. So you can't, those 14 days, you know, normally where you would at least maybe have it at home and then you could leave again, he's got to have those 14 days to quarantine before he goes home if he wants to, you know, and then he's got to leave again. What's your opinion of, like, the static he gets from the Australian public and the Australian media? Yeah, well, look... I mean, like I said, you know me, I was a pretty simple kid, you know, um, 
I worked hard on the court, but I, I also enjoyed my life off the court. And I always did what I wanted to do, feel what I wanted to do. And, and, uh, and no matter what people thought of that, it didn't worry me. And in, in, in a way, and he's similar, but different at the same time. I was very quiet on the court. You know, there were times when I would lose. If I, I, kept, I was very good with, with keeping calm on the court. Once in a while, if I just needed to explode, it was maybe one racket where I would just break it and then that's it, boom. Keep you know what moving. I mean? It's done. Yeah, exactly. Um, I got over things very quickly. Um, him, he, you know, he talks a lot. You know, he, 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 I don't know if that, I don't know too. It's like a McEnroe where that makes you play better. I, I don't think it does in my opinion, but I might be wrong. So for me, I know that when, if I got angry or emotional on the court, I didn't play better. So for me to play my best tennis, I had to stay calm and relaxed with him. There's a lot of emotion out there. And unfortunately, I think a lot of it is negative, you know. Um, and I don't think that helps his tennis. Um, I think he's played his best tennis when he's been a little more calm. Um, I mean, you've got to show some emotion. But I think he's played better when he's been calm. And look, man, you've got to, your actions, you know, whatever you put out there, you've got to understand that it's got to come back to you, you know. So... He is his own person. I think he knows that. He's, he's very, uh, you know, set in his ways and his views and he'll say what he says and he's very outspoken. But he's got to understand as someone in the limelight, that's going to come back to you, you know. And things now are totally different. We never had a phone with a camera on it. We never have Instagram. We never had Twitter. It was pure tennis. We did our thing. We can still be private. And, and, and people can, can write stuff negative. Right, your worst case scenario is you get a paparazzi at a restaurant. Yeah, with your and I went out, whatever. Exactly. Who, I mean, my God, I was, it was, who cares? Exactly. That's, and, and no one really was doing that or, and I just did what I wanted because it was me. I was always myself. But do the people of Australia want him to be great? Do the people want to love him or are the people don't, I, are the people, is there racism to there that plays into it? Look, unfortunately, there's racism everywhere. Um, that's just life. I, I went through a lot of that when I was younger. People had no idea even before my you know, junior years, a lot of that, okay, that, that, that no one knows about. Not when I became a pro, right? Because then they would just kiss your ass. It was way before that, man. So much that 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 I copped and my, my dad did. So and I, I want to tell you, um, you know, I I just spoke to Elena Dokic. She kind of took the tack that that every place, like you said, has racism, and that she was it was unfortunate that she caught some of it, but that generally speaking, she thought that those people of Australia were good. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Oh, I'm not saying yeah, people yeah. Australia are, are race. Not at all. Don't, don't give me... But it plays into uh, it. If that, if, I'm saying everywhere you go, yeah. you're going to find that. Yeah. It's the same. Call it racism. Call it negativity. Call it people that yeah. unfortunately just want to hurt or have hate. It's everywhere. You know what I mean? It's all around us. Um, but this is a beautiful country, man. I'm very proud. Um, to have been born and raised here and and I, and I moved back with my family because of it. I wanted my kids to grow up. They were born in San Diego, both my kids. I wanted them to move here and be to be around their family and to grow up because it is an amazing country with a lot of opportunities. Um, 
So, but of course, there's going to be some of that everywhere. But but with him, I, I haven't been around Australia too much. I've been uh, 24 years. I was living in the states, so I don't know. I can't say too much yeah. or speak to enough to people. You know, I'm very much focused on my own life to ask, what do you feel about this? I mean, you see a mixture. There's definitely, I, I think in general, they want to see him do well 100%. Um, and then there's the part where when sometimes he does act out or gets vocal or says certain things, it's, it's people find it tougher to support him. You know what I mean? Sure. But I think generally, absolutely, it's positive. They want him to do well. And I just, I think more and more, more Importantly, they just want him to play, man, and, and just to play and just play tennis and play good tennis for himself, you know? That's, that's how I feel. Here, here. What do you say about Rafa Nadal? Dude, what an animal. <laughs> I mean, can I just say that, that he manhandled Djokovic, who was one of the best of all time and could end up one of the greatest of all time? I mean, that guy on clay in five sets... I'm sorry. Just give him the trophy next time. Why haven't I mean, you know, save some money. What give were the your trophy. impressions of that first set? I I felt like Joker really wasn't his energy was wrong. I think it was very nervous, man. I I, I thought I it was nervous. He was nervous. I think he understood the magnitude. I mean, look, he's won seven seventeen grand slams, right? So it's all like we, of course, still going to get nervous. You're a human being. And I think it was an opportunity to say, this is my opportunity. If I can beat Rafa at the final French, this is all, you know what I mean? This is going down in the books. What was huge was the first few games, the first three games, I think went for almost 20 minutes. No, Mark, they went went for 15, 16 minutes. No, I think the first three games went for 30 minutes, man. Well, there you go. Yeah. So almost 20 yeah. minutes, the first two games. So I'm thinking, okay, he was 45th up, 40-15 in the first game. If he held serve, maybe his nerves were kind of different. You know how tennis is. 100%. It's completely yeah. different to lose the first service game. All of a sudden, instead of easing your way to a match, he's thinking, shit, now I've got to break him. I've got to go catch up tennis. So now instead of playing your game, you're playing catch up tennis where you're just trying to get the, the break back and you're not really sometimes playing your game, especially when you're nervous. So... Boom, 40-15. And then kind of had opportunity to break in the second. You know what I mean? So technically, it's like he could have been up two love. But all of a sudden, th- then 30 minutes later, he's down three love. And then boom, it's six love. Mark, he, he lost every important point for exactly. a whole, for really a whole match. He a, didn't really game, win a right? big point in the whole match, man. He started playing finally in the third set he was down i think what a break in the third and kind of came back um and and who knows what happens if he ends up winning the third set somehow things you know but but we'll never know but but like you said man for the first two something sets i mean the guy on the big points wasn't winning the big points and that's crazy considering that's Djokovic, and he's especially cert- that it was heavier conditions where people were like you know, oh, it's going to play in Djokovic's hands. It's heavier than Nadal likes the ball hitting up because it's normally hotter and the ball gets up higher. And he says, I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? Man, <laughs> it was so... Rafa won the French Open without losing a set, man. He didn't lose a set. I mean, the guy's a beast. The guy is a beast. Twenty Now he's 20. He's going to win another two, three Grand Slams easily. But then, you know... 
that could have been like 2019, 18, you know, if Djokovic won. But Djokovic, look, dude, he's, he's pissed because of that. And he's going to go into the Oz Open thinking he probably can't wait to play him next time. You know what I mean? Because he got, I can't believe it, but he got, he got a lesson. I mean, the guy got a lesson. Did you watch, uh, school, that did you watch Iga Sviantek? I mean, that chick lost 22 games the whole tournament. Second person to do that, Graf lost 20. And, and the only person who have done 22 was Chris Everett Lloyd, along with Chris Everett, to lose a few, fewer games in a Grand Slam. She was, I mean, where did this girl come from? I mean, how was this girl not at least top 10 in the world for the past year? I mean, you know what I mean? It's crazy. It's interesting the level she went to. It was, it was Andrescu-like in how she was just riding on a full tilt confidence it seems to me that in women's tennis the players with big forehands win slams win majors and she has a big forehand and she can and she can hit that backhand up the line with a lot of top spin and i'm not sure i've really seen that in women's tennis in a long time and an amazing athlete. I mean, moves incredibly well. Because what is she, like 5'10"? She doesn't look short. I mean, no, I think how, she's how big. Tall? I think she's a big... I think she's probably... 5'10", maybe? 5'11"? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And it moves, I mean, two, three steps with those legs of hers was covering the court with balance. I mean, look, I'm excited to... You know, for the fact that all of a sudden she's come out of nowhere now, you know, uh, her stepping up, getting some girls to, you know, so so... You know, because it's been so open the last few years, man. Yeah. You know, names winning, different names winning every Grand Slam, which is good at the same time. But you still want to start seeing, you know, some rivalry there. You know what I mean? Sure. You'd like to see the women challenge for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move into our third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. And I got to tell you, my man, as, as, well, as well as I know you, or at least knew you, really, back when you came on tour, I don't know that much about you. Where does your tennis begin? I started the age of six my dad, with my dad on the court. And you guys grew up. You guys started. are in. You're, is your father emigrated from Greece to Melbourne? Yes, yeah. Parents were we were married, and as a they uh, and my sister, my mom, my dad, and my sister moved to to Melbourne. Yeah. Um, so. And your your mother's Italian, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Background, yes. And there's a ton of Greek people in 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 Melbourne. There's a ton of Greek people in Australia. It, it was it well Melbourne was the second biggest Greek population outside of Athens as far as city. I know it's the third, I think. But um, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of Greeks, you know. Sorry, but especially in Melbourne. Yeah. How'd you get good? How'd you start playing? Man, I just started at the age of six. Uh, and and, and um, my dad was hitting with a friend of his after work and I was on the court and, and I guess he had, you know, he was taking care of me at the time and, and I was just bored. So I would, I remember jumping, running on the court and stealing the balls. And my dad said, look, please let us play. If you behave yourself, I'll have a racket for you tomorrow. We'll get a little racket, junior racket, and then I'll get on the court with you. And I behave myself. The next day after work, he came home with an old wooden racket, little wooden racket, and then that's how it started. When did you get good? I was I was pretty natural from the from the word go. Athletically, I I, I, I pretty much you know was found sports, you know, 
Were, were you of, identified by like Tennis Australia when you were nine years old? Yeah, I mean, I was playing. Look, at the age of nine, I was finals and winning under eleven tournaments and this and that. And already at the age of eleven, I was representing Victoria for the under twelves nationals. You know, so uh, I was, you know, good from a young age. And you were playing um, up. You were playing up. Always playing up, always man. Playing at up. least while always playing up for the juniors. I went allowed to go two years up, but then. From 14, as I got physically stronger from 14, 15, slowly, especially 14, 15, my dad would enter me in open tournaments. Yeah. You know, um, he, he always wanted me playing against better players, against better, stronger guys from the word go. Um, I was like that since I was 14 years old. How important was your father to your career? Very important because he created made me to the player I am, to be honest with you. Um, you know, we, he woke me up. He was getting me up out of bed to work hard before school, after school. Um, and he had an opportunity. You know, he was in the bank business for eight to 10 years. And sorry, he was what about business? to be, but he was in the, you know, worked in the, in the bank, you know, for eight years in the bank, he would give out loans, you know, he was um, a loan manager and, um, he they had called him in and said that we want to send you to Sydney to train because we want you to become a branch manager. That's all he's been working for towards, you know, means pay rise and everything. And he said, no, I've got to turn you down. He goes, this is what you've been working for. He was like, sorry, if I do this, I won't have time to train and, and, and be there for my son. He wants to become a tennis player. This is when I was 11, 12 years old, man. He quit his job bought a car, turned the car into a taxi. So while I slept, he would drive the taxi and then I could train. And then, you know, during the day when I, you know, he would, he would, um, when I was at school, he, he'd sleep. He, he gave up his life of, of going forward with his career for his son, where the chances of me becoming a professional tennis player at the age of 11, you know what I'm saying? So very uh, important uh, part, huge part, the fact that he gave up his, his whole career for a huge, huge, huge gamble, but he did it in, in a heartbeat. His story so has ended sadly. Is there anything you'd like to say about that? No, no, just, um, just what I said, that how, you know, his role in, in, in my career, how important it was. Did you play like junior Wimbledon, uh, junior US? Yeah, once, once. You did. Go, you, uh, so you went. So tennis did take you around the world as a junior. Once, one year, when I was seventeen, when I was chosen, when I was seventeen, um, I played that that year. I played Aussie juniors, you know, German, or Italian Open, French, and then my last junior event you, was Wimbledon. Did you so, have results? Yeah, I mean, well, quarterfinals, singles, and Australian Open. Won the doubles, juniors. Uh, quarterfinals, French finals, doubles, won the Italian Open doubles, quarterfinals, singles, and then that's when things change. It changed at Wimbledon. I got to Wimbledon. Um, after the semi-final, I signed a contract with Phila for five years. Martin Mulligan signed me up, and then lost in the final juniors and won the doubles. And then that was the last because all of a sudden we had money, right? I could travel, so my dad's like, "All right, that's no more junior tournaments." And we just started traveling, playing, qualifying for the biggest tournaments. After after that, hang on a second. So you were uh, an elite junior in in Australia. 
when yeah, yeah, when, or, yeah. when did you when did you think that you could be a pro player was there a match or a moment where you were like no not necessarily a moment man i was already dreaming at 9 10 doing and didn't know what it was back then right but visualizations with with my dad we were driving we we're going fishing and then we'd sit in the back of the car and he would just say to me you know keep working hard one day people are going to knock on the door and you're going to they're going to give you rackets to play you're going to and, and you and and uh you know clothes i'm like for free i'm like yeah for free and they're going to pay you you're going to be you know to use rackets to play and then i i was visualizing since i was 10 9 10 years old to become a pro there was no doubt in my mind there was no plan b it was always that man always i had no doubt was your at all that was your that family a, uh did your fan was your family middle class or was your family less than middle class i mean middle less than middle. i mean look we had a we had a house and we had food and a table. Parents drove a car, so we were very lucky. Oh, it's a middle class, you know. But very I'm saying lucky. you grew up a little hungry, though, huh? You were ready to. You were oh, trying to make 100%. it happen. Oh yeah, of course, of course, a hundred percent, man, absolutely, absolutely, um, hundred percent. From like I said, uh, I had a dream, and there was didn't matter what you told me. I knew that that was going to become a reality, you know, that was the result at Wimbledon and the Fila contract, truly the catalyst for the, no, for the pro no, career. No, I will tell you what happened. Okay. I won't go into it too much detail because it's, it's a long story, but I was 15 years old and, and um, I was 15 years old and I was, they, did the, they chose the group to go play Italian Open, French Open, Wimbledon, the A team. And I wasn't chosen the A team. And I was one of the best. And I remember my dad saying, why didn't, how can you not choose Mark to go, you know, what's going on? How can you not be in that team? And he's like, because we don't think he's as good as the other guys or he's going to be as good as the other guys. So I got chosen to go to another one, to, to go to Asia, to play kind of the B junior things. You know what I mean? And I was very upset incredibly upset and to be honest we had a trap we had a manager a coach that came with us to take care of us and there were there were there were four of us and i did not try i didn't listen to him at all not didn't try but i didn't listen to him at all during those four weeks you were you know, angry. To, i was upset you know um and and um and didn't listen to him at all. And then when I came back, he wrote a report that was one of the worst reports of all time. And then I was training at the Victorian Institute of Sport at the tennis center at that stage. And I came in um, they, um, after the training when they got the report and they went ballistic and they kicked me out of the Institute of Sport. And they said, you're not allowed to come to a tennis center. You can't train at a tennis center. You can't train at Albert Park. We don't want to ever see you again. We don't care what you do. So... I was waiting on the iron, but so specifically remember this. I was waiting on the curbside outside of the courts on the street crying. And my dad came and he's like, what's wrong? And I told him what happened. He was listening to me. He's like, all right. He goes, you got two options. First option is we wake up every day before school. while it's dark outside and you train harder than you've ever trained before school, go to school, I pick you up from school, we train again, you sleep, we do all over again. So you can kick everyone's ass and they can kiss your ass, come back and kiss your ass and ask you to come back. Or you can listen to them, we'll throw your rackets away, you go to school, finish school, get a job 
and be like everyone else. What do you want to do? And I remember crying and I was like, I want them to kiss my ass, I said. So we went to work, man, waking up every morning, dark outside, putting on wintertime balaclavas, you know, wearing gloves, cutting off the fingers so I can hold on to the racket. And it was dark outside, so we'd go to the courts. And then back then, they would have a box where you put in some coins and it would give you 15 minutes of light. You know what I mean? Yeah. Light would turn on for a certain amount of yeah. money you put in. So we would find, he would find money around like coins to, you know, and I grinded, man. I grinded that year, trained hard, freaking grinded, grinded. The next year, um, I played the open tennis state number one, youngest ever, just turned 16 years old. Didn't lose a match. I was 25 and 0. Played the Victorian Hardcore Championships. Won that. Youngest, uh, second youngest. Pat Cash won it at 16, but he was one month younger than me. Won that. Then played the satellite. Then asked, they asked me to come back to not Victorian Institute of Sport, just that, but Australian Institute of Sport. So he goes, we're playing a satellite leg. Please come and train with us at, at Canberra. And then we'll play the first, first event was actually in Canberra satellite. And then he went Melbourne for the two events and then the Masters in Melbourne. And you know, the satellite, if you do well in the, satell in the satellites and you're in the Masters, that's when you get your first ATP point. But also the winner of the Masters got a um, wildcard in Australian Open. So I went, trained to Canberra, lost first round. My dad picked me up. He's like, dude, these guys are, you know, wrecking you. We've been training so hard and now, you know, you're coming back. You're coming back. Um, you're not going to be training with them anymore. So the next next event was in Dingley, second satellite. I play Michael Tebbit. Remember Michael Tebbit? He was number one seed and he was like 140. He normally just wanted to get some, he just wanted to get some matches, you know? I play him first round. I beat him. I end up winning that satellite leg. Next satellite leg in Kuyong, I win that satellite leg. I make the Masters. I win the Masters. I win the wild card at the Australian Open. So I've literally won, I lost one match or two matches the whole year. And that's when things started. That next year. Woo, that's unbelievable, man. Oh, yeah. The next, that, that, that. Following year, what happened? You know, got wild card in Australian Open, of course, super nervous, lost first round. Then they invited me to go to the A team to go to Junior Wimbledon, Junior everything. I got to Junior Wimbledon. Um, I was at the French Open. I was playing this guy, Ruswin Sabao, this Romanian guy who was number one junior in the world. And Martin Mulligan was checking him out because they were going to sponsor him. For our listeners, Martin Mulligan, a lot of my listeners, you know about him. Former world number three back in the 60s. Yeah, he has been the head of pro players for FILA since the beginning of FILA. It's Martin Mulligan, uh, an Australian that that basically defected and went to Italy and it's Absolutely an incredible right. story. Uh, but yeah, uh, sorry, one of continue. the nicest guys you can meet too. One of the nicest guys you can meet. Beautiful human being. So all of a sudden I was on the radar and they, they started watching me. I didn't know that at the time, but I was told all my matches at Wimbledon. After semi-final, I signed a five-year contract. My dad pulled me out straight after that final. This is, you're not gonna, I didn't play the US Open juniors. I was the last junior match I played. And then we had the money and we started traveling playing uh, ATP. Uh, the biggest tournaments in the world, um, qualifying. How long did it take you to get into the top 100? So listen, quick. So I was still 17, got a wild card again. They gave me a wild card that year at the uh, Australian Open. First round, I played Stefan Ebig night match. It was four sets, you know, so everyone, I was kind of the first 
in the scene, you know, where on the world stage where I was an 18 year old kid, you know, playing all junior, playing, um, qualifying, qualifying, then I go to Scottsdale. I'm like, by that stage, 400 in the world. Scottsdale, I qualify. Remember that cool event, Scottsdale, how good it was? Of course. So I qualified Scottsdale. Long story short, I go on a rampage, bid Todd Martin semis, who was top 10, and lost to Curry in the final. So then I go to 130 and end up going to Clay. I end up losing a semifinal of a Clay Court tournament to Marcelo Rios. I go to 110-ish. And then around 100. And then I, I'm in you. I don't get inside the French or Wimbledon. Um, but then I get in, um, in the US Open. I end up losing a third round to Pete Sampras in four sets. And then I go to the indoors in Asia. I lost to the final in Kuala Lumpur uh, to Marcelo Rios. Actually, before then, I won my first, sorry, yeah, Marcelo Rios. No, did I win a tournament? No, 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 that, that's still, yeah, I just, yeah, I just turned, um, sorry, I just turned, um, yeah, so I lose in the final to uh, Marcelo Rios. And then the next event right after that is the Japan Indoors, the million-dollar indoor tournament, the biggest indoor tournament in the world. I lose in the final. I beat, I play Stefan Enberg second, second round. I beat him. Six love, six two in 42 minutes. <laughs> then I beat Krychek and that ended up losing to Chang in the final. So boom, I'm 32 in the world. Come on. And so I'm 32 in the world. I finished our year 32 in the world, I think. So I got newcomer of the year, ATP newcomer of the year. And then Australian Open, third round, I play Sampras where I beat Sampras in straight sets. Well, that's the most famous moment, right? That, that kind of, yeah, push, so. that, that moment when you beat Sampras the 96 Australian open, no one knew who you were and you left that, you left that match. I mean, generally speaking, no one yeah. left well, that in, match. In the like, tennis world, in the tennis world, it changed everything. Then, then everyone knew who I was. You, well, you blew him um, off the court, man. Was that, was that the best match you ever played? Did you ever play better? Did you ever play better than that in your life? I've, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have. I have. Um, but that was one of, to be honest, one of, um, I remember watching that. I was like, whoa, that was just such a moment. It was awesome because number one, it was in Melbourne, in my hometown. It was a night match. I love playing night matches because it was a show, kind of show time. And I loved, I loved that. I thrived on that. I loved night matches. And the atmosphere was awesome. The buzz was, there was a buzz. But the way the you air. played, uh, man, you played like a perfect match, I feel. It was a, it was a good match, man. It was a solid match, and um, yeah. So you know, and then then that year I won uh, my first ATP tournament. Um, if, you know, actually Kuala Lumpur, I, I won the doubles final when I lost to Marcel Rios with um, Patrick McEnroe. So I'd already run a couple of doubles tournaments, and and Tommy Ho I won the Hong Kong Open. With Tommy Ho as well. We got a wild card. So um, and that's when everything started, man. I won my first tournament um, that year as well, and then yeah. You know, I have this memory of being in the players' lounge in like Stuttgart or Hanover, and you were shooting pool with Andre, and you were asking him about like his plane and his cars and stuff. And I felt like he was trying to give you a lesson, like, "No, man, you yeah. don't, you don't buy a plane. No, man, you don't. I only hundred percent. I only buy Cadillacs. I don't. I only buy American. Car. Like he was trying to like kind of dial you back. He told me. Remember that he told me the story that he actually bought that Vector. 
and then that thing caught on fire and ended up saying, you guys, I want my money back or I'll sue you. Remember that thing or I'll sue you? And they gave him his money back. The first US supercar, the Vector he had, he bought. Remember that one? I don't and he re- caught on fire. I just remember him like, I remember trying to that dro- story. I remember him trying to dr- oh, yeah. drop some knowledge on you. 100%. Dude, I was an 18-year-old kid. What knowledge was I going to listen to at that stage? I grew up with nothing. All of a sudden, I had the key to the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? I could buy what I want. It's like, what 18-year-old kid's going to listen to that? I'll let, put your money away. And it's like, <laughs> dude, come on. You know what I mean? Yeah. You've got to learn through life. Um, and, and, and I've always been close to Andre and love and respect him, number one, number one as a human being. And, and of course, a legend of who he is as a tennis player, but amazing human being. And, 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 and just um, so always had respect and continue to have so much respect for him because I spent actually a year in Vegas, 2006, when I was injured pretty much before I had finished. And, and so I got to know him really well and trained with Gil there and, and, and Darren Cahill. And, but my question but, is, you know, when you were 18, you were 19, do you feel looking back that you took you took your eye off the ball? Did you, did you stay serious in the? T- I know, I know, I took my eye off the yeah. ball. I know I did, but I was, dude. You can't, you can't um, be prepared for things like that. You 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 can't tell yourself stay focused. You know what I mean? It's just stuff's being thrown at you left, right, and center. Doors are opening up everywhere. There's no, you know, waiting lines for it. You know, you know what I mean? I feel you don't like people forget and, and that you were a big star, man. You were like, you don't, you don't. I don't regret a thing, yeah. Greg. I don't regret a thing because I've always lived my life with passion and still do. But, but there's, you know, priorities now. And as an 18, 19 year old, 19 year old kid, man, it, I have zero regrets. I have zero because let me tell you why. Number one, and most importantly, anything I did never hurt anyone. You know what I mean? I didn't do anything to hurt someone or do anyone wrong. It was all about me making decisions for myself and my life. Whether someone agreed with it or not, that was fine, but I enjoyed my life. Whether someone said, you can always look back on the outside and, and, and judge. It's very easy to judge, but I don't regret anything at all. How, you know, I was, how impactful was the, the knee injury and did it really happen at the Sampras quarterfinal? And that was like the oh, beginning yeah. of like big problems for you. Would that be fair to say? A hundred percent. It was 1999 Wimbledon quarterfinals against Pete Sampras. I had um, won the first set and I was break point in the second set. Okay. One all break point. And I hit a backhand on my back foot and I land on my back foot like I've done 4,000 times in my life. And then, and then when I landed, it was like a tweak. I'm like, what? Shit, man, what was that? You know? And I was, and it was break point for me. And then I was like, damn, what was that? I think I hit a winner or something where he missed a volley. I'm like, ah, what? So I was like, okay, whatever. And um, I was returning serve, big serve, and I went to move. I'm like, ah, God, what was that? You know? And then he ended up winning next two points and and then I was like trainer you know Doug Doug Spreen came on the court I was like I was like what's going on like dude I'm like I don't know but on the backhand it was like a tweak I felt something behind the knee and I didn't have any pain but it kind of like a discomfort when I land I'm like what is going on and I try and push off so you guys land on your back play lay down 
and he's grabbing, you know, my hammy and, and, and my leg and, and kind of stretching the hammy and trying to move the knee around, you know, moving around and stuff. I'm like, no, it's, it's not too bad. He goes, all right, go, stand up. So I stood up and all of a sudden I could not put any weight at all. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't even walk. It was over. Just within him, like messing around a little bit. And what had happened was, so I had to shake hands, you know, with Pete, you know, and I remember I shook hands with him and it was such a beautiful day, blue skies. I was hitting the ball so freaking good, man, you know. Oh, who knows, man? I could have lost the next three sets, but, but I, I didn't want to go out that way, you know, who never want to go out that way. And Pete was like, sorry, man. He goes, you know, you had, he goes, you had me today. Or he said something like that. And I'm sorry. And I, you know, went into the locker room and I remember I got on the table and I just, just came out the emotions. I just started crying, crying, crying. Cause I was like, not the fact that I didn't know what was going on, but just, Oh my God. Now, like, you know, quarterfinals Wimbledon, which is my, my, my favorite tournament in the world, my dream as a kid and play, playing Pete and being up a set. And I was like, oh my God, this opportunity, you know, I just, just freaking blew it, dude. And then, and then at the same time, like also like what's going on, like what happened? And then we found out that I had torn my meniscus, but that part that I had torn had ended up during when he was stretching me, had folded back into the joint. So every time oh. I got put weight on it, that, you know, the meniscus was rubbing and that's why there was so much pain. Um, so as soon as I had the surgery, there was relief. And then that year, we won, I won the Davis Cup that year. He actually recovered quickly. Meniscus, you can recover quickly. Within a month, I was fine, you know, almost 100% because rehab was awesome. It was just a little tweak, a little, little chop and trim. Um, and then it was, two th- I want to say 2000, 2001, 2001 uh, two th- end of 2000. Yeah, it might have been the end of two or 2001. I think I can't remember now, man. Anyway, I was having a great year and I was Paris indoors final and I was playing my right stuff in. We had an amazing match where it was seven, seven, six and a fifth. He beat me. And if I had won that match, I would have been top 10 in the world and actually would have made it in the, in the ATP championship, the, the finals. But there was one tournament to play. It was in Sweden. So if I did quarterfinals or something, I took a wild card in Sweden. So if I made one, two matches or something like that, I, I would have made for the top Masters. eight. Yeah, yeah, I would have. Or something like that. I could have, I could have played. So I got the wild card. And the night before, with my coach at the time, Peter McNamara, God rest his soul, who we lost, unfortunately, to, to, um, to cancer last year. Um, we went to a dinner. And he... So we went to dinner and we we're walking across back from the restaurant and then there was a car coming. So I just started to walk and then kind of jog. And I'm like, dude, what was, you know, I was like, oh, it's like something's hurting me. Woke up to play, warmed up. I couldn't even warm up. Ended up um, going back, flying back, had a, had a MRI, torn meniscus. So I pulled out, ended up finishing 11 in the world, missed out on the championship, ATP finals. Um, had my surgery on the court five days later after my surgery. Um, missed out on the Australian Open, then went to San Jose. First tournament back. I'm seated two or three, San Francisco number one. I win. First tournament back. <laughs> and then go to Memphis. And I win Memphis. And then San Jose, I played. I was a little sore. 
but I'd won it two years in a row and, and no one's ever won it three. I think Sampras, Agassiz won it two and Roddick won it two and I was going for a third. So I win Memphis, my first tournament back, go to San Jose, lose quarters, not feeling great, I remember. And then next tournament's Miami. I go to Bali in Miami and I play Chang. I beat Chang in straight sets. I wake up and my knee's like a balloon. My knee's huge. Oh. I didn't really have that much pain. I was playing, but my knee's this big. So I've got to wake up. I'm playing third round. I'm playing Federer. So I'm like, man, I've... so I end up putting a sock over my knee so no one could see how big it is. And I play Roger and he beats me in three sets. I end up going straight to get an MRI and they said, we need to do surgery 6 a.m. first thing in the morning. So when I wake up, they said, you've torn a meniscus again. But once they were in, they'd realized that it's gone straight through the bone and I had bone on bone. So I had to do a microfracture surgery and a microfracture surgery is you've that's my bone. So they've got a you've got a they use a tool called a yule and they pick it. It's like these stone um, sculptures where they kind of hit away at the stone. That's a point. They had to do that with my bone, and they ended up drilling or picking a hole, a big hole, and then I ended up being out for like four months, six or six months, but three months in a wheelchair because that. And the bone ends up bleeding and then you're not supposed to have any, any kind of movement on it because the blood ends up hardening and then becomes a cartilage around the bone because all my cartilage was gone because of the wear and tear. So I, I was playing with bone on bone for a long time. And then that's what ended up happening. So I was in a wheelchair for three months um, and then depressed mentally of course because i'm a, you know i used to ride my motorbikes jet skiing i used to wakeboard snowboarding so i was very depressed and and to get through it i remember my dad would get a tai chi master i would do tai chi in a wheelchair and and, and meditation and stuff um and then i woke up one day and he had sawn off the armrests of the wheelchair and then we ended up going on court and started training um when i was in the wheelchair and three months later i got off i was on crutches for a month and a half and then back, back training, you know, I ended up moving from Miami. I was like, if I've got any chance of coming back, because I said, I'll never play professional tennis again, you know? I was living in Miami Beach, and I thought, man, if I've got any chance of coming back, I need to get away from South Beach. <laughs> South Beach was just way too close, man. And at night, you know, the lights were on, and you, and you just hear it calling my name. So I'm like, I need to get away from South Beach. <laughs> so I ended up buying a five-acre ranch in Del Mar, which is like uh, Delray Beach, which is almost two hours drive, you know? Um, north of Miami Beach. Got to get out of Miami built, if you're going to come yeah, back. Yeah, man. I built, a, <laughs> I built a, a couple of horses. I built a U.S. Open, U.S. Open hard court, and I had a red clay, and just started training, man. Training my ass off, and um, and then yeah, start, and came back from there. You know, so hang on. So you finaled Wimbledon after microfracture surgery? Yeah. So Woo! no one's really come. Uh, yeah. So I ended up also doing some. Um, things where I did a um, synvisc shot, synthetic cartilage injections. I was one of the first few to have done that professional athlete. You know, I remember talking to you about it before yeah. U.S. Open for a story I was doing on you for the USA Network. I came down to Philly. You were playing team tennis. And you had yeah. just had that synthetic cartilage put into the knee. Yeah. So pretty much what that did, I did it with one other guy. And I was like, it could work, it could not, but I was like, what have I got to lose, you know? Yeah. I was doing anything. I would have a guy come to my house every day, five days a week. We did half an hour of Pilates, half an hour of yoga, and he would massage me for an hour. That was part of my rehab. He would do that five days a week, you know, during this whole time after me coming back. 
So, and what they did was pretty much in the back of a chicken neck, the neck of a chicken, they pretty much used the cartilage from a chicken cartilage and, and, and of course, put some other stuff and they would inject it into your knee. Um, Collagen. Yeah, and it was, oh God, it was painful. My God. So for two, three days, you couldn't really hardly walk, man. It was just crazy painful. Um, and then hopefully that would add, because I've got like 50% cartilage on my knees now, 40% on each one. You know, it's because it's like bone on bone. So that would hopefully absorb and become cartilage around that joint for added pressure, added joint. And I did that twice a year because they said it could last six months if it does work. And I started doing stuff like that, you know, anything to get back, you know, to try and help. When you made the 2003 Wimbledon final, I read that you thought you were going to win that match. That's that's Federer's first Wimbledon. Of course. Of course I did. Grass, a month before, a month and a half before that, I beat him in clay. I beat him at Hamburg, round 16. I beat him and he won that tournament, German Open, the year before. And that's, you know, Clay and I beat him in, in, in three sets and he's supposed to win that match. And Grass, dude, it's, that's my surface, you know. It's, uh, I, I felt very confident. Of course, I mean, look, the guy was seated three or four at the time. It's not like he came out of nowhere. You know, yeah. he was already top five in the world. But I was unseated. But I knew what I was capable of and felt very comfortable, especially on, on Grass. And, you know, that match, that first set was such a huge thing, that, that tiebreaker, you know, as far as momentum, played such a big... You said that you, when you lost that breaker, that was the match. No, not necessarily the match, but, but energy-wise, momentum, it was huge. Um, you know, because during that stage, to get to the final, I think I was on the court close to six hours longer than he was because I played a, a couple of five-setters and a couple of four-setters, I think. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it just you know, nerves with everything and just settling in a set up at a Grand Slam final, man, is a totally different story. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, after two weeks, it's, it's a long two weeks. Um, so, and then it was like six, three and six or something it was. How would you, sorry, when did you start to, when did your ranking start to fall out? When did the, you know, you hung in there for a really long time, it seemed. Um, yeah, you know what? The next year, 2004, um, look, that year was big. We won Davis Cup again in, the, in the, uh, 2003. We beat Spain. And I um, finished eight in the world. And, and look, man, again, I I'm, I'm, I'm feel very comfortable speaking openly because there's nothing to hide and, and because it's a great lesson learned as far as what I'm doing now in my life has made a huge difference. Because like, okay, I can't do nothing about the the past, but at least I can learn from it, right? And make sure that doesn't happen. So I'll be a hundred percent honest with you. So I had some opportunities to like a huge contract with Yonex, but they're like, if you, for clothes, but you know, I've used the same racket since I was 16 years old. You know how, you know how funny I am with rackets, man. Seven rackets. You would, you remember the time you would string with me and I'd use one racket for the match and you'd have to cut all seven strings of rackets and do them all over again. They had to be ready that day. You know how particular I was about my rackets, Flip, right? You were a you were a Dunlop player. Well, they the Dunlop I used for a couple of years, but they copied that old prestige. You were, were a head prestige, redhead prestige since I was player. sixteen. Since I was sixteen years old, so, and then I had Dunlop for three years. Right back to the head. Okay, because nothing quite felt like the head. To be honest with you, the prestige was a very special racket. One of those ones. It's just. It's just 
if you're used to playing with that kind of racket, there's nothing else it's like a very it. You know unique I mean? feel. You know, yeah, you know that. It's it's just a hitter's racket. It's a pure hitter's racket. And and so Yonix, you know, and, and my my filler contract was up that year. And we're speaking to a few people, and by that time, contracts are mostly done. You know how they work at Wimbledon on the US Open. And then the money, there's not as much money, you know what I mean? Put forward to athletes as most of their money is gone you know what i mean during the year so contracts up and at the time yonix i remember my age and my dad's like you know you got a pretty big significant offer from yonix but you have to to wear their clothes but they want you you have to use their rackets i was like can you just try i'm like no nah. i'm like I, I can't play with yonix you know what i mean man i That's was like no nah. hard like, change sure? though Oh yeah. I was like, just try. Cause it's, you know, it's a big contract, but you, it's not going to be just closing. I was going to be the first player to have. Uh, the to be with program. First player. The Royal Rinker program. Before that. The I'm very saying, first though, guy. You would have been the first guy in, 100%. in, in clothes, yes. sneakers. The first guy, the first guy offered yeah. to that was, was the first person was pretty much all that was saying we're getting to close and we want you, but they want, we have to use our racket. Yep. I didn't even look at the contract. I was like, I can't, I can't, you know? So I, I didn't sign. I didn't sign. And I went into that, you know, my racket was black, you know, my racket was black, even for Wimbledon final head was like, you know, we'll give you so-and-so if you put the head stencil on um, for the finals of Wimbledon, we'll give you a lot of money for one match, you How know, much? and then we can talk. Uh, I don't want to say it, but it was, it was a good chunk. Like right. Grand. And I'm like, uh, you know, I mean with money, I never cared. I was like, no, nah. I was like, I'm a very, it's not about I go, no, I go, no, man, I go, it's too late now. I go, you know, we, I said no. So long story short, I'm pretty stubborn, especially at the young age, I was very stubborn, you know, um, <laughs> still there, but not, not as extreme. So I was like, no, I'm not, not doing that, man. And you know, superstitious as an athlete, I'm not changing anything. All of a sudden finals, you know, Wimbledon, you know what I mean? Um, so I didn't sign. And then, so I start off playing, in 2004 Australian Open with Phila I'm like I want to do the right thing by them man I've been wearing Phila since I was 17 years old you know since 94 I'm wearing Phila I'm like it's 2004 man so it's it's been 10 years so I'm like I'm going to do the right thing man I'm going to I'm going to stick with them and just wear Phila and just hopefully work something out and by that time I think they were bored out you know and they owners have moved and and um they had so problems was, yeah they had problems so they couldn't unfortunately do anything and, and i'll be honest with you craig and i and i i lost which was a mistake because understanding my mindset was screw this man i worked so hard to come back through what i went through finish eight in the world just one day for the second time i'm like how can i not have a clothing contract i said to my agent i feel like I'm pretty marketable. How, I, how am I starting the year off without a clothing contract? You know what I mean? I thought it was even a little embarrassing. Not, not so much embarrassing, but it, I was just pissed because I'd worked so freaking hard, man. And I was pissed, you know? And I'm like, you're supposed to be rewarded. You're supposed to be rewarded when you work hard. And they said, I'll never play professional tennis again. And I came back to have the best year and finished the highest I've ever been and win the Davis Cup for a second time. So I got a little bitter. And I just stopped training. My, my heart wasn't in it as much. I'll be 100% honest with you. My heart wasn't in it. 
and I was making decisions that weren't based on tennis. Um, and I just, my heart wasn't there anymore. That's the honest truth. Instead of me going, you know what? I'm going to work twice as hard. You know what I mean? Just like I did. Remember I told you when I was 15 years old right. when that happened. Right. You know what I mean? Sure. I didn't do that. Um, I screwed up. I should have done that. That's, that's a mindset I should have had, but I didn't. And that stage, my ranking had dropped. And then um, when I got back to a good place with myself, better place, um, and I was starting to come back and starting to train and starting to feel good, I got injured where I tore my meniscus on my right knee for the first time and then never recovered, never played professional tennis again. Um, since 2006 was my last year playing professional tennis. So I was actually on the way back, training hard, moved to Vegas, was trained 2006 with um, Gil, um, Gil Reyes yeah. and Andre and, and Darren Cahill. Felt amazing. Hopman Cup started their first, you know, playing um, um, Dimitrov, not Dimitrov, sorry. Forgot who it was. He was like, you know, 12 in the world, beating first match, feeling great, man, and tear my cartilage. And the next Hopman Cup match, tear my cartilage and never recovered. You know, how it was too you, late. How do you describe your pro career to maybe like, you know, someone who doesn't know that much about tennis? You say, hey, I'm a Mark Philippoussis. Uh, I played pro tennis. What do you say? Uh, look, I would, I would say this to you. Uh, as, as making it as simple as possible, when I was driving to those fishing trips when I was 10 years old, nine years old, if an angel, you're, Craig, you're my angel. You came to me and said, Flip, you will end up living your dream. You will become one of the best players in the world. You will win Davis Cup twice for your country. Um, you will lose in the final of two Grand Slams, win Indian Wells, which is they say is the fifth Grand Slam of the year, you know, one of the biggest master in the biggest event in the world, eleven tournaments, eight in the world. Um, but your career will stop early because of injuries and you'll finish at the age of twenty-nine or twenty-eight years old, your career will finish. But here's the contract. Would you sign the contract? Dude, give me the contract. Where is the contract? I'll sign right now. You know what I mean? So if ifs buts could i have been in, in better position certain stage could I have done things differently yes yes but end of the day man i'm i'm proud of the career i've had as a tennis player and could be proud to sit my son down when he gets a little old and say just this is what your dad achieved this is what he did and show him some videos you know what i mean i think that's the best way of describing that let's move into the fourth set this is the 10 ball scramble we don't do a Dude, deep that dive. Set, that was like, that was 2018, the tiebreaker, that said. That was exhausting. Bro, I tell you, you listen, man. <laughs> you win the record for the longest podcast I've recorded. So, listen, it's the fourth set. It's the 10-ball scramble. We don't do a deep dive. I say it, and you say what comes in your mind. You ready? Let's go. Yes. Wednesday. We know, your, we, know, we know the answer to this already. Your favorite racket. Head prestige, man. Size of your grip. It was a custom grip. I never knew the size. It was custom grip for my hand. I never knew the size. You would probably know better than me. <laughs> uh, well, how did you string your racket? How? Natural gut. What did you play with? Oh, when I when I played, you know that man. You were thirty six 
kilos natural gut you're breaking records on the machine remember that you strung it tight like a like why'd you do that 36 to 38 kilos yeah, natural gut yeah, why'd you string it and, so- and my racket weighed 400 grams you remember that right you got a heavy racket you're a huge guy but yeah. how did you why'd you string it so tight because i hit the shit out of the ball man i needed that thing it would fly out if i didn't <laughs> come on where do you keep your trophies they're in storage in boxes i got them in storage I don't even have them in my house. Did you save your credentials? No. The only credentials I saved are my kids' credentials. You never saved credentials. What would you do with them? Just throw no, them out? What you, like, just, uh, they stayed in the hotel room, that, that tournament, as soon as I left. Your, your greatest win? The, the two Davis Cup wins, finals for my country, yeah. Your worst loss? Oh, God, there's been a lot. But the tough one for me was, well, oof. Davis Cup was a tough one one year. The next year we won 2003. Uh, and then we lose to Sweden first round in Australia. That was tough, man, from such a high to such a low. That was tough. But also one of them too was, was after I beat Sampras, man, I had to play Mark Woodford. Our last team the next day. You talk about one extreme to the other, man, you know, coming crashing down to earth because you've gone from one of the hardest hitters of all time and beautiful games to, I'm sorry, Mark, but one of the ugliest games of all time uh, that, you know, no pace, weird spin coming at you, lefty. I didn't know what was going on. So that one. Your favorite tournament? Wimbledon. Your favorite city? Oof, Melbourne. Not right now, but Melbourne. Your favorite court? Could be any court in the world. Santa Court of Wimbledon. The most insane thing you ever did with prize money? Jesus, how long is this podcast? <laughs> um... <laughs> I mean, like, like right out of the office. Like, just did you just ever go buck wild and buy a Lambo right out of the office? Oh God, I was, I was that was just a Wednesday for me. Um, I let me tell you, nineteen ninety eight U.S. Open. Thank God I lost in the final of the the, the Open in nineteen ninety eight because I walked into a Harley Davidson store at the start of the tournament and I looked at a Harley Davidson which was twenty grand at the time and I started customizing it do this, do this chrome here, white pearl here. And I ended up leaving that store and it was 120 US for a custom Harley Davidson um, in 1998. So I lost the final. So half of my prize money paid for the uh, 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 Harley Davidson, which I rode once. Rode once? Yeah. Did you ever buy a plane? No, no, I never played. I mean, I rode private, you know, fly, but I never, no, I didn't, never done planes, no. Listen, let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you could be the king of tennis and you can make a change in the sport, what would it be? A change in what way? Like rules? Are you talking about it could be way anything, it's... man. It can be anything you think that could be changed. That would be a slick change. Like if you were the king, man, you could do anything you wanted. Uh, I, I, I don't... You could be happier I, okay. the way it is if you don't want to change anything. No, I would do one thing. One thing. I would bring back Davis Cup to real Davis Cup. That's the only thing I would change. These idiots ruined Davis Cup. Such an incredible thing where future tennis players will never get to experience the beauty about Davis Cup, playing home matches, playing away from matches, the stress, the highs and lows of Davis Cup. I would bring back Davis Cup because what they have now, this is not Davis Cup. I would bring back proper Davis Cup back that's what i would do the one thing i would do tennis mark philip listen man i have to tell you this is one of the 
great conversations we've had on this show. You know, you've been extremely forthcoming. I, I can't thank you enough. What's the back end of the year bring for you? That's it, man. Hopefully, hopefully out of lockdown here soon. Focus on the family. Uh, I'm actually, during lockdown months ago, I've started, I'm creating a clothing line, fashion label, well, kind of fashion label, but a, a, a clothing line that I'm really passionate about. It, it's, uh, it's consciously made luxury uh, basics. Um, it's all made in Melbourne, Australia. Fabrics made here, organic cotton. What's the name of the company? As We Create. Um, As so we I'm hoping create. to launch just before December. Um, it's been put back because of the lockdown and factories closing here. But, the, you know, my stuff's made here, ethically made. The fabric's ethically made, organic, 100% cotton. Um, all the stuff I make is with uh, recycled paper. And so it's, I'm super excited about this, man, and proud of it. And I'm looking forward to, uh, yeah, just it's a passion project for me. That sounds fantastic, man. You look, you probably look great in the clothes. I mean, your wife looks, your wife's a just chill stuff, man. Just chill stuff. Your wife's stuff a supermodel. You, she looked great in the clothes. You put the kids in it. The... Uh, that's who I'm going to have wear it. That, that exactly. 100%. I'm not going to be cool wearing that shit. Yeah. Mark Philippousis, uh, have a terrific Thursday and rest of your week. Uh, you are released. Right. It's been an absolute pleasure, man. Huge thank you to Mark Philippousis and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. We are taking orders for the tennis t-shirt of 2020, the quarantine classic. We have the Blanc, the Terrebatu, and the Ver. Shoot me a note if you want to cop a shirt. Max Lowe edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.